This is Good Omens Episode 3, Hard Times on TV Podcast Industries, in association with... Hmm? Ah! Hey everyone, this is Chris and I'm back for our chat about Good Omens Episode 3, Hard Times. Hello there fellow acolytes, I am your other host John. Welcome back Chris. Thank you. Yes, welcome back Chris, I'm your final host Derek. We're delighted to be here for our review of the third episode of Good Omens on Amazon Prime. Yes, yes, and what a three episodes it's been. Mm-hmm. Oof, Have you been the, enjoying it, mate? The apocalypse has been barreling down towards me. And I've enjoyed every step of the way. Much like the four horsemen coming towards me, I am like, okay, I'm okay with this. This is fine. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, this episode was great, definitely. Chris, what did you think of the first two episodes overall? What's your uh, What's your first take on, on this series? Our first real comedy series that we've covered, right? Yeah, so this is a new one for me. I was trying to get into the dark and try and find the gritty and go, so what did they mean by crepes? Nothing. He just made crepes. He <laughs> likes food. An actual crepes. I'm yeah. just like, okay. So it, it's a, it's a unique new take for me as a, uh, as a podcaster. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it because Michael Sheen and David Tennant are so, they're, they're like the sun. You can't like just by, because of their pure proximity, everything else is dulling slightly. Because okay. they are so good. They, they, like, as a Seraphale and Crawley or Crowley, depending on which way you want. Um, when you meet them. When you meet them. <laughs> they are the embodiment of these characters. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and for those of you who read the book will probably agree. For those who haven't will feel that they are, that they're suited to these. Um, and just, I, yes. I feel that some of the other, the, the kind of side characters are just, I, I, I don't know, just, Maybe not getting the light that they should right now. Okay. But as of right now, I'm absolutely enjoying every part of it. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. Um, Aziraphale and Crawley are the main characters of the show. This is their story barreling towards the apocalypse and they are fantastically cast and, and David Tennant and Michael Sheen. They, they are brilliant on screen together. And we got a lot of that in this episode, episode three of Good Omens, Hard Times. We got a lot of their relationship in this episode too. We certainly do. As I say, it's a, a run through the ages. And I think with that, onto our spoiler filled run through the ages, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and also remember, fellow acolytes, that you can get in touch with us over on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash TV podcast industries. Voicemails for any feedback through our website at TV podcast industries.com. Remember, it's just that right hand tab on the web page and you can leave up to 90 seconds of your demonic or angelic thoughts 
Uh, and of course, then you can send in email feedback to goodomenspodcast at gmail.com. So please get in contact with us. I know we've certainly had a few comments through on our Facebook page. So uh, we will be sharing uh, those with you a little later. Yes. But before we jump into our top five signs of the apocalypse, John, do you want to give us a short, brief synopsis? Sure. Throughout their 6,000-year relationship, Aziraphale and Crowley have discussed the ineffability of God's plan. From the flooding of Mesopotamia to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and from the Roman Empire to Middle-aged England, they realized they could carry out each other's jobs. In return for Crowley saving Aziraphale from a beheading in Paris and some Nazis in London in the 1940s, he asks for some holy water in case everything goes wrong. Aziraphale finally concedes... Meanwhile, as everyone begins to see the signs pointing towards Lower Tadfield in Oxfordshire, Adam gets an education on the world's issues from Anathema Device, and Famine receives his call to war. Tadfield in Oxfordshire? Very, very good, John. There's a little geography lesson for the rest of us who didn't notice that on the map. It's in Oxfordshire. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> it's... I this think. is where our fellow, <laughs> our fellow acolytes are going to come back to us and say, well, actually. <laughs> it's in Cambridgeshire, yes. <laughs> no, that would truly be uh, devilish. <laughs> <laughs> but gentlemen, let's jump on to go through our signs of the apocalypse as we barrel towards our call to war. Um, first up... Derek, do you want to take us away? Yes, our first sign of the apocalypse is the friendship throughout the ages. This is probably one of the longest openings for a TV show so far. About 24 minutes long before the actual opening credits roll. There's only one show that's had a longer cold open, which was the first episode of the show with the OA, which had a 57-minute opening before the credits rolled. But the reason for that, I suppose, is because that was the first episode of the show, and, and I don't know whether it stands up against this, which is right in the middle of the series and gets almost half the episode done before they roll the credits. A great little mechanism to show you that that's the end of your flashbacks is after... All of the all the four thousand years of these, these relationships, and then you roll the credits as well. Nice little mechanism there. Yeah, it, it's really good. I have to say, what they had to do for the production. You know, they took us uh, from Noah's Ark through to the crucifixion, ancient Rome, the French Revolution, Kingdom of Wessex, Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, St James's Park in the Victorian period, the mm-hmm. Blitz in London. Right through to the psychedelic era uh, in the 1960s, the swinging 60s, I uh-huh. think. Although I think I had that down as the 1970s. All the production changes that had to happen for them to deliver this backstory effectively <laughs> of Aziraphale and Crowley's um, friendship. Although Aziraphale would probably um, banish me to hell for that <laughs> or something like that. Uh, you know, this relationship uh, between the two of them and how they you know, get to know one another, how they come up with this plan. You know, the fact that we find out here, as you were saying, Chris, about the crepes, um, that uh, Aziraphale is a bit of a foodie. He's in ancient Rome seeing how they prepare oysters. Uh, and on each of these stages, bumping into Crowley uh, and, and bringing this plan to effectively cancel one another out or at least pretend and show head office that they are cancelling one another out even though it might be one or the other doing all the 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 hard work on that Mm -hmm. so you know heads or tails um do you go to scotland or not so i I really i really liked how they did this and i think it really sets up nicely 
uh, later on in the episode as well. Really heartfelt moment. But you, you get that sense of how close they've become through this real whip around the ages uh, mm-hmm. and uh, their friendship throughout those ages. Yeah, it's definitely that shocking revelation that after two or three thousand years on Earth, everything that Aziraphale has done has been cancelled out by something that Crowley has done. And then they kind of go, we could really just sit at home and drink tea or read books and go to meals and just let the world sort itself out because everything we do is cancelling <laughs> each other out. Or we could go out and you do one thing and do my thing while you're there kind of kind of idea. Great little concept between the two of them. I love that they, they've set all of these moments throughout history at some really horrible moments, things that, that people would cry to God, why are you doing this? You know, this idea that God has decided to pun- punish all the inhabitants of Mesopotamia by flooding the whole city <laughs> and saving just Noah and his family. And the two of them are standing there going, he's not going to kill kids, is he? Is God going to kill children? Well, I guess that's the way we do it now. There are some great moments uh, here, for sure. Um, I love the fact, you know, Crowley goes, I'd expect our lot to do this, um, you know, effectively drown the world. Uh, and also, as the unicorn goes fleeing and there's only one <laughs> left, so, of course, we don't get unicorns anymore, which is such a shame. I wonder if it's true. I like the implication that Crowley doesn't know how sex works because he goes, oh, well, you still have one of them. It's all right. Like, <laughs> that was <you> brilliant. <laughs> doesn't seem to realize you need two. <laughs> I, re- I just, I enjoyed, like, for me, it was the round table. That's the Black Knight. And mm-hmm. that was just, it was just, yeah. so, like, the coming out of the mist. I, it, it's very, and the one thing I will say, it's <laughs> very, very British humor. And of course, that is because of oh, the yes. two writers, um, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman being very British. This did remind me, this whole flashback reminded me very much of, I, I want to say Hitchhiker's Guide. So, you know, when they were just traveling to all the okay. different planets and there's always something different, something quirky, this, what this reminded mm-hmm. me of. I get it. I get that. Definitely. For me, it really reminded me of Monty Python. We have a little bit of the Holy Grail in there. We have the meeting of the White Knight and the Black Knight on the, on the battlefield, both, both kind of going up against each other. Really, for me, totally Monty Python. We have the life of Brian with the uh, crucifixion going on, the people watching the crucifixion, having a little bit of a comedy moment from the spectator area, effectively. And then, of course, Black Adder. You know, we have the French Revolution going on. Of course, it's going to remind you of Black Adder in there as well. There's definitely been some moments of uh, of beheadings going on and, and mistaken identity going on in Black I th- Adder. I think that that's it, really. There's a real silly mix between all... Uh, of these different time points in, in history. And I think it's, you know, you're at the crucifixion mm-hmm. uh, and you you have Aziraphale going, I'm not consulted on policy decisions, which is just really funny for me. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I and I love the fact that Crowley is there going, well, what what did he try and do? It was, it was like, bring peace and love. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Well, I'm not nice surprised. Other, yeah. yeah, I'm not surprised he's being sort of uh, put up on a crucifix, you know. But then you hear, you know, Crowley saying he took uh, Jesus to the, the kingdoms of the earth because, well, his uh, his travel is limited as a carpenter <laughs> from Galilee. Yes. So there's a real nice mix here between just, like, the real serious that someone is being crucified essentially for saying, you know, love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Um, and then I think then it goes, it, it has really nice lighter moments as well. And I, I thought the silhouettes of the crucifix 
uh, or the crucifixes, I should say, on the sort of the evening sky was just a really beautiful shot um, from the director, which really atmospheric of of that. So there were so many different points along this route through history um, mm-hmm. as well. I could name loads. Yeah, it's a really good moment. If I remember my Catholic teachings right, what Curly's talking about showing uh, Jesus all these other kingdoms of the world is when the devil is effectively trying to tempt Jesus out of the desert yeah. during Lent when he's doing that 40 days in the desert and the devil is tempting him with all these worldly desires and worldly visitations and visions that he's giving to him to try and tempt him off that rock and tempt him back. That's if I remember my teachings correctly. Yeah. It's been a long time. <laughs> I was taking the whole Jesus they took. Remember when he disappeared? Like he, where he went from age whatever to age 30 something. Right, right. Um, I took it as that's when Carly was just bringing him on the tear as a boy kind of thing. <laughs> I, I, I think you think can read it like that. Yeah, I think he says shows him, which just means visions, because I don't think he would travel with the devil for 30 years. <laughs> well, it was a never, demon. Yeah, he, yeah. Come on, it's not a devil. It's a good-ass, fun True. demon. Yeah. True, but there is one funny touch here, as you say, John, that, that little moment where you kind of have this conversation between the two of them as if they're middle of management. You know, they're kind of saying, you know, we move the papers around a little bit. Don't tell the bosses in, over in section two what's actually happening. We'll just kind of talk amongst ourselves and work it all out, you know, as if they're middle management. But what we hear from God at the beginning of the episode is that Aziraphale is the protector of the realm of Earth. He is the one that has the protects the gates to Eden, effectively. And Crowley, as we hear later on, is a prince of hell. He's not just a middle management person. He's quite a high-level demon. Uh, there are other levels of demons that are above him, but he's pretty high-level, you would think. Uh, and given he's the one that was sent to tempt Jesus Christ, you would expect that that's quite a high level of of, uh, of a devil that's being sent to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's a really nice moment with Aziraphale kind of trying to um, you know, put the, the brick or the stonework back <laughs> together, uh, around the Garden of Eden and it's yes. kind of caught red-handed by God. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're not middle management, but I love the fact that, you know, when they are in the kingdom of Wessex with, uh, the Black Knight and the whole realm of King Arthur, that that's where they go. You know, Crowley is there to spread foment and discord, whilst Aziraphale is to spread peace and tranquility. And they are literally just cancelling one another out. But then, you know, that, that, the seed of that plan comes into operation. But then the arrangement goes as silly as just to make Hamlet more popular because <laughs> Aziraphale really quite likes it, yep. but it's not really getting the crowds in, in the same way that Shakespeare's comedies are doing. So I, I love that kind of moment. And, um, and you get a really nice bit with the, the Nazi double agents and then the double double agent from British military intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Aziraphale is bringing these prophetic books to the Nazis because, um, Hitler wants to know effectively how the war turns out. He also wants the Spear of Destiny and all that, but he doesn't have the one that he's actually looking for, the one that they say is actually right, mm-hmm. which is the the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter. Uh, but he does say that there was one uh, in the in the publisher's blurb on this, which was, do not buy Betamax. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved it. Yes. Um, and then you have Anthony J. Crowley coming in, uh, sort of on the hot tiles of the church, which was just a fantastic little bit of observational comedy where you know he's coming onto sacred ground as a demon so he's just keeps it's like being on hot coals that is hilariously hilariously put together (laughs) 
so much is good, I think, through through this, for sure. Yeah. What I really loved was, basically, we've been given potentially the MacGuffin of later on, which mm-hmm. is going to be the holy water. Yes. So, after all this, uh, essentially, Crowley does turn around to say that in return for all of this, for, he wants defense as well. He would like some holy water. And mm-hmm. it's then that we see shoot forward to the 1960s where he's doing a caper, essentially old school, like the Italian job caper to steal holy water. <laughs> Actually, we see even a young corporate Chadwell, yes. um, which is very cool. And then we get this as Airfield does. For all his hard work and everything that they've done, which we see this blossoming friendship, Aziraphale does give him a a, a much coveted flask of holy water in a thermos with a airtight seal. (laughs) Absolutely. I think this is really interesting. You know, we've got this hundred year kind of conversation that's going on between Crowley and Aziraphale, where Crowley just all he wants is holy water. That's what he wants from him in case everything goes to crap. And heaven and hell learned that Crowley has been working with Aziraphale. He wants some form of defense effectively. So lovely moment. That is, you know, apart from obviously just discussing the relationship, you're absolutely right, Chris. What actually is happening is Crowley is getting his hands on some holy water, which is something that Aziraphale does not want to give this demon because it does tie the two of them a bit together, I suppose. Uh, some great moments throughout these, this historical uh, time together. Another uh, thing it does remind me of is David Tennant's time on Doctor Who. Uh, he did have a visitation with Shakespeare uh, in his time on Doctor Who. Shakespeare yes. played by Reese Shearsmith uh, from the League of Gentlemen. Uh, another couple of members of the League of Gentlemen joined the show as well, John. Absolutely. Uh, the two Nazi uh, agents there mm-hmm. in the church, uh, Mark Gattis and Steve Pemberton are there mm-hmm. yeah. um, as those two uh, Nazi agents. So uh, really good to see the League of Gentlemen uh, grouping brought together yes. within the episode. So, yeah, really like that, I have to say. And also, it's quite nice here that you get the sense of uh, Mr. Shadow being with Crowley. And, you know, we've heard about these agents of his that are on Earth, but they're not really very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you kind of assume then that this is Mr. Shadwell. Yes. Major Shadwell. Um, and certainly when you learn a little later on in the episode, which I do think is one of the funniest moments uh, in this episode, where um, the god says how... Witchfinder Shadwell isn't really the the one who controls the Witchfinder army. <laughs> that is instead, and it runs through these different people, but it's kind of old photos associated with it. And then you get Witchfinder Saucepan, Witchfinder Tin Can, <laughs> Witchfinder Milk Bottle, plus uh, then Milk Bottle is deceased because right. he's been drunk. And then finally with Witchfinder Cupboard, and I have to say... <laughs> Um, I did absolutely burst into hysterics. I still can't stop laughing about it, to be honest. Um, oh. and it gets even funnier when you realize that Aziraphale sent flowers for the death of Witchfinder Milk Bottle. <laughs> um, and he was really sad to hear how he, uh, how he died. Oh. Um, and just a great sort of comedic moment that is totally bonkers off the wall. Love it. Absolutely. And as Crowley gives him his brand new mission, you hear him look around the cafe and go, I'll set my two best men on that. Witchfinder Lipton and Witchfinder Table. Because <laughs> his imagination is so bad, he has to only pick things <laughs> in the cafe that they're in. It's, brilliant. <laughs> it's so, so funny. I have to say, 
Absolutely classic. I, I I just found this like that that part for me was the one that got me. That was the the, the funniest moment of the whole thing. Even the, the Nazis <laughs> like still even had me going. Okay, this is good. And then at that point, I was just like, "Nope, done. You found it. Well done." <laughs> yeah, there's that really nice bit as well where Michael Sheen says, "Oh, what's that lovely American expression? Played for suckers." And then as it kind of progresses through, and uh, the military, British military intelligence lady is actually a Nazi as well. You you have uh, Mark Gattis, one of the Nazi spies, going, "Yes, I will have to remember that uh, I am played for suckers." Um, you are played for suckers. He, she, it are played for suckers. And he goes to kind of the the tenses and the German. Uh, certainly with the uh the masculine, feminine, neuter, and all this mm. is just so spot on with just that observational. So good. Yeah. Um, I I love this opening. Just such. A great run through. Absolutely hilarious. And I also love that we have Steve Pemberton, uh, playing another German character once again after the wonderful hair lip from, uh, from League of Gentlemen as well. So, uh, great stuff. Really, really good. If you haven't seen League of Gentlemen, definitely go ahead and check it out. If you don't mind being offended and scared by your comedy, <laughs> definitely check it out. Well, that is basically 30 minutes of this podcast at episode three. It's about time to move on to our point number two, right? Yeah. No, it makes about sense that the first 30 minutes of the actual show was, the, uh, our first sign of the apocalypse so let's move on to our second and I'm going to take this one mm-hmm. Adam confronts Anathema who lost her book yes. I found this brilliant more just because the first part that got me was the dog having problems as his life was a puppy instead of a hellhound and so just funny. when he goes after the cat so and he goes and and he tries to light his eyes to scare the cat. The cat just goes at the dog. That's brilliant. And he just the line continues even better mm-hmm. when he goes, he considers he will try again later with yapping and jumping up and down. And I was just like, yep, yeah, that's, that's, that's how a hellhound in a yappy dog will work. Yeah, I love it. I love as God explains, there are certain things that are that are. Uh, part of being a small dog and no matter how big a dog you were beforehand if you're a small dog now it's the way you're going to be for life <laughs> yeah it, it's really nicely done i love the red eyes of the puppy mm-hmm. uh, certainly with the cat like you say chris uh, and also where he's trying to i presume turn the horseshoe upside down again or something now that's protection on the house to protect uh jasmine cottage from a visitation from evil but even though that has this protection Adam's word telling dog to go inside the house forces uh, the protection to drop effectively. That's why it's burning okay. as a, yeah, as a I, horseshoe above the But that's the, the thing. Is, is that just that it's burnt and then the power of that lucky horseshoe is now gone? Yeah, yeah protection okay. has gone off the house. I don't know whether the dog would be able to walk into the house in the future on his own. Okay, because that's what I was thinking. Like, I was kind of going will the dog burst into flames but mm. it seems that whatever it, it's a bit like when the nazi symbol in indiana jones starts to burn through from the inside from the the arc uh, of the covenant it's like the reverse of that instead this is evil sort of nullifying the the good exactly so effectively dog has to do exactly what adam says despite there being protection here I also love this little moment when Anathema finally kind of introduced herself to Adam. She's met him before with his other group, but when she meets him, uh, Anathema asks Adam where he's from, and he goes, this is my world right here. 
from this point here to that point over there and from that point there to that point there it's my entire world so it's a very nice touch for the for the antichrist to say he's in control of everything in the area effectively so i nice took it differently touch. i took that when they said that a little bit of evil had been burned away i took it that the evil of the hellhound mm-hmm. had burned away because he was forced to go into uh this area but okay slightly different we'll just wait and see yeah, I think it's yeah. He, he can't he can't hold out against uh, the will of Adam, regardless of what he should do or what he's being told for any other way. Yeah, yeah he has to do what Adam says. Um, <laughs> I, I did enjoy I did enjoy this overall. Like just this the setup where they they meet each other, they they go into the house, and she just sends into telling mm-hmm. him all of her crackpot theories that you you expect from someone <laughs> who is an avid. Long-time reader of the New Aquarian. Yes, yes. It's very interesting. <laughs> the New Aquarian is very different from what she's talking about. She does talk about some things that obviously matter. You know, she's talking about, you know, the, the burning down of, of rainforest. She's talking about nuclear nuclear power and needing to get rid of that. And But she does kind of frame it in the, they cut down uh, forests to give you a burger is kind of the point. And when she's trying to convince him about nuclear power needing to be gotten rid of, Adam goes, yeah, it's really boring, isn't it? I had to go there on a school trip and nothing happened. Nothing was bubbling green or anything. <laughs> I love that. So I love that kind of discussion. And then you see the kind of articles that are inside the new Aquarian are completely different. The magazine is about things like, you know, the rise of a kraken and the disappearance of Atlantis. Some absolutely crazy theories going on, but totally unlocks Adam's mind to this this completely different world that he never knew anything about because it's outside of his little his little area that he's got in Tadfield. Yes, the the pond and the woods and those mm-hmm. boundaries. Yeah, I love how this it kind of links in a bit to um what we were saying previously uh, in the last episode where he's in bed fast asleep and you mm-hmm. were saying from the from the book it was that he's reading all these things these new ideas from magazines and it's unlocking his mind and you, you you constantly have these voices in his dreams then telling him to mend it all end it all Ooh, yes. uh, and i must say um the fact that i was wondering why are they focusing on the sherbet lemons uh on his bed and then <laughs> uh you have again just it, it's just that matter of factness as the nuclear scientists are are told that they have to go uh, and look into the nuclear reactor because something that should be doing however much power has gone to zero percent you just hear the lady go well that's not something you see every day uh, <laughs> as the nuclear reactor has disappeared mm-hmm. uh, and instead uh lit in all its glory is a sherbet lemon uh, <laughs> that has replaced this nuclear reactor and it is just oh dear i did laugh that's hilarious. <laughs> really good. That's um, hilarious. I love that it's still providing all the power that the nuclear power station did before, but it's not coming from the sherbet lemon. <laughs> it's coming from absolutely nothing because <laughs> yeah. it's it's the absence of nuclear of of the nuclear reactor is what Anathema told Adam that she wanted, not the absence of the power generated by it. <laughs> but it's kind of Adam's thoughts are becoming reality mm-hmm. uh, as he learns these new ideas or these these new ways of doing things that he seemingly agrees with, but for different reasons. Yeah. Anything else on that one, Chris? I want to see what additional new Aquarian mumbo jumbo makes it out into the real world. Um, I do want to see <laughs> Atlantis kind of rise off the shore of, I don't know, the United Kingdom. Uh, Atlantis is found right. or something like that. It's just all these little ones that you'll see in the background <laughs> on the TV. 
And I think that's where we're going mm-hmm. to get some quite fun things out of this. Yes, yeah. there's a few things hinted at in the opening titles that I'm not going to point out for you if you haven't noticed them. <laughs> let you let you check those out the next time you watch an episode. But um, you're absolutely right. This is a big show of power as well for the Antichrist. This is his first moment of power, and these things are happening while he's asleep. What's he going to be able to do when he's awake and concentrating on it? Yeah. Scary stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think onto our third sign of the apocalypse. Mm. Aziraphale tries to stop it. Yeah, I think this is a sign of the apocalypse when one of your main characters is trying to stop the apocalypse, right? Because <laughs> it, it's got to go bad, right? He's got it. He's realized, hold on a second. I can't trust Crowley anymore. I can't work with him or I shouldn't work with him or else heaven will, will kill me for it. I need to tell heaven that he's lost the Antichrist and we can go and save the universe. We can go and save the world from the, the coming apocalypse. Heaven don't seem to care very much about it, though. <laughs> the kind of attitude of, well, how can we win a war if we don't have a war is, is the attitude that, that he gets from Gabriel and from uh, the other uh, heavenly host, I guess you'd call it, the four angels that he meets. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's definitely they don't seem to care, mm-hmm. but then they care very much that Aziraphale is acting suspiciously. Yes. Um, you know, I think one of them says he's been down here too long and I don't trust him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think here though, Michael Sheen's performance of that awkwardness of trying to tell his boss effectively, Gabriel, uh-huh. that, you know, all these hypotheticals and that uh, may have lost the Antichrist, but, um, you know, he can look to try and find it, even though he knows where, um, uh, the Antichrist is. So, you know, he's being really awkward. It, it's kind of like that school child who's been caught in a lie and mm-hmm. is trying to get out of it. And I think Michael Sheen is amazing in, in trying to do that. I also loved him, you know, practicing to speak to Gabriel as well. He's yeah. like, Gabriel, the almightiest of angels. Oh, no, no, too formal. And then he goes, <laughs> Gabriel, me old mate. Um, and it's just really, really good when he's in his bookshop. And it's just a beautiful performance by uh, Michael Sheen, mm-hmm. I, I think. Um, and it comes across as just comedically funny and so well, so awkward. Um, it's, it's really good. I, I- yeah. Just totally enjoy any scene with John Hamm in it. It's just, he, the embodiment of corporate. (laughs) Everyone knows a middle manager like this. Yes. And if you don't know a middle middle manager like this and you are a middle manager, then it's probably you, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What I really like about this, and I haven't mentioned it on the podcast before, but just there's been quite a lot of interviews with Neil Gaiman talking about the show and talking about the things that he was doing for this. The sequel to Good Omens that Terry Pratchett and uh, Neil Gaiman were thinking of writing back in the 90s was supposed to be focused on on uh, Gabriel. Uh, the character never really made it much into the books themselves. You do hear about Gabriel, but he's not a major character, not a significant character. So the amount of screen time they're given to John Hammond, the show, is fantastic. And he really does pull off this kind of slimy, smarmy uh, guy that's going with the going with the head of the company, effectively the CEO of heaven who wants the battle to happen. They know this war is coming regardless, and he's just going to go along with it. He's not going to question it because, well, that's the plan, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, does he have, like, purple eyes as yes, well? Yes, he does. Yeah, yes. okay, I thought good, so. Good I was kind of thinking, okay. Uh, I, th- I think the other thing I really like about this is, as you say, they don't seem to care, but then they they do, uh, and more about Aziraphale. But Aziraphale cares absolutely uh, about 
there being another war. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, they're kind of fairly blasé about the fact, well, there was war before Earth, and we need to have this war to effectively finish off all those fallen angels mm-hmm. uh, from the last war. Uh, and they, they really, you know, Earth is the collateral damage here. And I love, again, how um, Michael Sheen's performance really you see the pain of what they're saying that, well, there doesn't have to be another war, does there? Uh, you know, he, yeah. he doesn't want this. And even when he's practicing, he says, well, we've mislaid the Antichrist, but I know where he is, so we can go and then exterminate him so everything can, will be okay and get back to normal. Yeah. Because yeah. he's, he wants to go and get more craps in, in Paris, presumably. <laughs> so it's what's life to yeah. go back to normal and go back to reading and his I, books and having his sushi. You know? I, I love this, you know, this difference in, uh, in, in scale of this almightiness, this grand plan and, and, just one of those uh, chess pieces is like, but I don't want this to happen because then I can't eat crepes in yeah. Paris. Um, and it's, a, you know, or my friend who I can't call my friend because he's a demon. Well, then we won't have that friendship or, yeah. you know, that relationship. So I, I really just think it's so nicely done as well here. Yeah. And um, as you say, like, you know, when, when Aziraphale's plan to bring it all back to his boss doesn't work, uh, himself and Crowley both call on their own armies to sort this out. And both of them turn out to be Shadwell, which I think is a great little twist. I love that. And speaking about comedy moments of the episode, my favorite <laughs> comedy moment is the phone call from Aziraphale to, that Ma- Madame Tracy answers in her posh voice with hello. And then <laughs> when I asked to find Shadwell, she says, I shall endeavor to see if he's available. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastic performance by Miranda Richardson here. She's just brilliant in this part. I know she gets only a small amount of screen time, but she really does turn it up to 11 every time she's there. It's really good. Yeah, absolutely really good. And it's nice to see a bit more of Newton Pulsifer. Mm. I think as you were saying, Chris, you know, just to get a bit more information about him. And I love the fact that it's almost his witch-finding abilities are um a bit innate within him he, yeah. he he's able to spot these things it seems like this is his natural gift we see how utterly useless he is with technology <laughs> uh, and with computers yet this he seems to get that grasp of and I, that's a really nice uh moment here um as well just that it's not about things being unusual but just about things being so normal it's unusual exactly. uh, i really like that yeah yeah, uh, and I, I'm interested to see more of Whitehall himself uh, as the rest of the series progresses. Um, the one mm-hmm. thing I will say is I'm wondering, and uh, I'm getting well ahead. Of, I'm getting at least three episodes ahead of myself. But did they <laughs> fold, only three episodes left? Did Chris. <laughs> they fold in the proposed uh, sequel parts into this? Because as you said, yes, it was going to be Gabriel focused. I'm wondering, do they take those parts and? kind of fold them into this season. From what I'm hearing, this has been getting both critical and audience praise. Yeah. And we're just the first weekend after release, just so everybody knows when we're recording this. It's just just after the first couple of episodes have come out on Amazon Prime. So we're seeing a lot of positive reaction from fans to this. All I know from the interviews that uh, that Gaiman had talked about was they had a conversation between himself and, and Pratchett about would they be able to do a sequel in the future? Because they've remained great friends over the 30 years since the book was written uh, until Terry Pratchett passed. Um, they had the conversation that if they were to write a book, it would contain Gabriel. But they never really wrote anything, never started on the book in any serious uh, fashion. So um, 
being that all of this is all taking place over a one week period in the 11 years leading up to the end of the world. And this last, uh, these, these episodes that are on the television and the book themselves are based really in that last seven day period. Everything that's happening here with Gabriel is during that time. So I would be doubtful that a further book would go and take these scenes from Gabriel and, and put them into a second book. I think it would be, would need to be a very different premise. I think if they were to do it, I think they'll pull a second season somewhere. They will not. Uh, it has been confirmed by Neil Gaiman. He won't be able to work on a second season. <laughs> this oh, is a labor wow. of okay. love for a Terry There Patrick. you go yeah. then. All right. This is a one-off, a one-off miniseries. In fact, in the title on, uh, on Amazon Prime, they, they list it as a, uh, as an event series. Uh, from, oh, from our, I like that. Okay. Uh, from our listing. Yeah. So it is a big event. And I think we did talk about it. I know Chris, you were here for our, for a preview episode uh, earlier on before we talked, talked about these. But one of the things is that. Really, for Neil Gaiman to sit down and write a six-episode TV show is quite a massive endeavor for him to do. He's, he kind of says he did this as labor of love. It would it would make him a lot more money if he sat down and wrote some books uh, to to sell because his audience is gagging for him to write more and more books. But he did this as as the last request for Terry Pratchett. It's a lovely sentiment. Lovely sentiment. Well, okay, Absolutely. so we're going from a feast of uh, six episodes to Mm -hmm. uh, potentially a famine. So let's move it on to the fourth sign of our apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, famine's getting his call. He's going up to the big leagues. Yes, uh, we've all seen uh, this happen in the world, haven't we? (laughs) How dinner is getting smaller and smaller and people are getting happier and happier to pay more and more money (laughs) for less and less food. (laughs) Chris, what do you think of this scene as, uh, as effectively Dr. Raven Sable is describing what the new famine is. It's effectively haute cuisine. I, I enjoyed this so much. <laughs> I, I, as a man who loves his food um, uh-huh. too much sometimes, potentially I do need some haute cuisine. Um, but it was just <laughs> really like the, the scene is, here's a balloon filled with the lavender scent, scented air. And that will be your first course. And then just pops it in front of her. She's like, oh, amazing. And I've seen... I've seen this type of thing. I find it so oh, yeah. hilarious. I, I just, yeah. Yeah, go to a Heston Blumenthal restaurant and you might be presented with chicken froth on a reduction of broccoli gel with a mushroom foam. That <laughs> <laughs> wow. takes seven days to prepare and will empty your wallet quicker than anything else. Absolutely brilliant. And the fact that Fallon is also developing not just Hope Cuisine, he's also developing a food called Chow for everybody else, which is yeah. a food that has absolutely no food anywhere near it. <laughs> yes, his his food free food. Yes. Um I I must say <laughs> I thought it said you it kind of had the the terms and conditions uh, coming up really quickly where it's you know will help you lose weight and liver function and may cause anal leakage. Um <laughs> and of course it's just like excellent stuff. Brilliant. Yeah. Food free food. It's a twinkie, isn't it? Is that the start of it? <laughs> well that's the thing that will survive the apocalypse. So there will still true. be twinkies in space <laughs> if there is an apocalypse. <laughs> but it's really good to call out because this is the second member of the horse people of the apocalypse as they're as they're being called. <laughs> the riders of the apocalypse. So uh, we have war last episode, famine this episode. Hopefully we're going to see the other two get their call in the next episode. Yes, we have pollution and death still to come. Mm-hmm. Yes, looking forward to seeing more of them. We get on to our final sign of the apocalypse because obviously the majority of this episode, the first 30 minutes of the episode, was explaining the relationship between Crelly and Azurfell. And at the end of this episode, it is the end of Crelly and Azurfell's friendship, right? 
that's kind of what you get from this. It, it's a separation of ways, uh, and it, it it is made the more impactful, really more powerful because of that, as you say, the cold opening, mm-hmm. which is what thirty minutes or so, yeah, um, where you really get connected to uh, their time spent together on Earth through the ages, and and here at the at the bandstand, um, you have. Crowley and Aziraphale effectively saying that their friendship is over. And you can see the conflict in Aziraphale, uh, you know, as he's, he's, he's towing the party line effectively. You know, it's not our side. I think Crowley is very much happy that it's their side, that they're doing this for them. Um, it's why he's got the holy water insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Aziraphale, you know, has, has been the more reluctant partner here in, in this relationship. And, um, you know, he goes, it's not our side. You are a demon and I am an angel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you kind of get a grunt from, from Crowley as he's like, well, okay, then like enjoy the end of days kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's really impactful here right at the end. I think as well. Crowley has a fantastic line of great postulant mangled bollocks. Um, I want that to be my out of five, oh, to right. be honest. However, it might be something else. Might have a different plan. <laughs> yeah, speaking of, of uh, Michael Sheen's performance in this episode, you're absolutely right. There's been some great moments in the episode. In that, in that opening scene, we didn't really talk about it, but when he saved in 1941 uh, at the church in London, there's that moment when... Uh, Crowley uses a minor miracle to get all of his books back, give them to Aziraphale. And I think that's the one that Aziraphale falls in love with him. If angels can fall in love with each other, there's just that look in Michael Sheen's eyes where he goes, wow, look what you've just done for me. You've just not only prevented my death for the second time, you've also saved the things that are most important to me, these books of prediction. Uh, and it just feels like they fell in love. And they have that moment in the 70s when uh, he finally gives across the holy water to Crowley. And there's that, again, that moment with Aziraphale where he says, you can't drive me anywhere. You can't give me a lift anywhere because you always go a little bit too fast for me. It feels like a commentary on the relationship from Aziraphale as if he's saying we could we could be lovers, we could be partners together, but we can't because we're angel and demon. Yeah, no, I, I see that the same way too. And I, I think we're, we're going to have that hopefully reunion the next episode. Unfortunately, since both of them have the same thought about the same way of doing things, they're still not completely open with each other. As they keep talking about their own agents. Like, yeah, oh, I have, a, I have a network of agents, a network of agents. And mm-hmm. it turns out for all this time since the 70s um, or late 60s, this, their agents have been the same people. Exactly. <laughs> so I think we'll get a, a nice reunion in the next over the next sixty minutes. Yeah, it's such a great gag with the the two of them walking away, thinking they have that that completely different plan from each other. They're sending their agents out, but their agents is exactly one person, which is Newton Pulsifer, <laughs> who's actually going there in his own money, paying for his own petrol and investigating something completely different than than Shadwell was actually told to investigate by both Crowley and Aziraphale. He's going there to investigate this complete change in the weather in this area of of, uh, of England. Uh, a lovely little moment there that they both think they have a plan, but the plan is for not, really, at the moment. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, it, it's, it is a really good book-ended episode here from mm-hmm. 
the beginning and getting to know one another to the bandstand moment. Um, and I, I thought it was really, really nicely done. And I think, as you say, yeah, there's still a few things in there that aren't fully explored between the two of them, whether it's um, their own personal feelings towards one another, you know, that Aziraphale won't accept a lift. You know, he even says to Crowley, no, don't say thank you. Uh, you know, I, I really yeah. thought that was interesting, really kind of nicely played by Michael Sheen. I wonder if had Crowley said thank you because he's a demon, would that have shone a light on their relationship? <laughs> would heaven hear about a demon saying thank you to someone? Is that why he says, shall I say thank you? And Maybe. he says no. I wonder, is it like a suddenly this kind of radar pans out to the universe to go, you've got demons saying thank you to people here, there's something going on. Like, you know, is that a big warning sign? I don't know, but it, I wondered just the way it was, the way the conversation happened between the two of them. I'd love to see that. Like, if we do see that later <laughs> on, just as we see a thank you, wah, wah, wah. Just, <laughs> and you see God. In a, a random part of hell, we see the following. <laughs> exactly. That'd be really good. Uh, that is our top five points for this episode, our top five Signs of the Apocalypse. Uh, some notes on the episode, guys? Yeah, I've got two. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Adam's aura, which is so massive that um, Anathema device cannot see it. Um, although you do get to see other people's auras uh, while she's in the village of Tadfield. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was really good as it kind of you know pans out. She can't see it because it's a matter of scale. Uh, so I really like that as it pans <laughs> out and the aura is around... UK and Ireland, um, so a massive aura. Yeah, um, and then also just the neighborhood watch guy, JP Tyler, uh, played by Bill Patterson. Um, I just love this moment again, just such good comedy, but it, you know, it's kind of like that hot fuzz moment here, uh, where he sees her with a map. So he thinks, um, she's a person of interest that mm-hmm. she's casing the joint effectively, <laughs> uh, which I really like. Uh, and then, you know, it kind of gets rectified, but then descends uh, into him saying, if you're coming here to smoke your fatty spliffers uh, and bimble off to woo-woo land, well, then you can go home. <laughs> uh, oh, and by gosh. home, I mean America, because he, you know, it transpires. She is uh, the American at Jasmine Cottage. So, mm. um, Ah, uh, fatty spliffers and bimble off to woo-woo land. Um, all <laughs> I can say is that is British comedy at its finest. Definitely. I was Complete pleading nonsense. with John to use that as his outro. For I this might episode. do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other notes, John? Um, no, that's all from me. Chris, any notes? Nothing from my side. There's a couple of interesting ones in here. I love that first conversation with Aziraphale and Crowley where Crowley is saying he's renamed himself from Crowley and Aziraphale wonders whether whether he's chosen uh, Mephistopheles or Asmodeus. Uh, Both of these are names for kings of hell, as I mentioned earlier on in the episode. While Crowley isn't at the level of, say, Satan or Beelzebub, he is quite a high level in hell. Uh, Asmodeus commonly is a snake-like creature. He's been used in many different stories over the years. And Mephistopheles is a servant of Satan who is trapped in his own hell. So that's quite similar to the character of Crowley. So nice choices, not pulled out of the air. Like, you know, pretty much nothing is pulled out of the air by Neil Gaiman. Uh, he knows he knows exactly what he's writing, what he's doing. Um, also, that scene with the Nazis uh, that's purposely written for the TV show that wasn't in the books at all. Um, 
it's quite interesting that we have the two members of the legal gentlemen in there referencing things like the Spear of Destiny and the Holy Grail. Uh, they're referenced to Indiana Jones. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of the, the popular culture reference of effectively the Nazis always went after these occult items to further their, uh, their agenda. There was an, I, I, this impression that Hitler was an occultist of some sort who felt that if he had something of power in his hands, he would win the world, the world. He would uh, take over the world. So that's where this scene comes from. Quite a, quite a nice, nice touch. And finally, my favourite Easter egg for this particular episode, uh, Shadwell meeting Crowley in the cafe. In the background on the television, there's a movie playing the whole time that they're there, and the movie is called The Witchfinder General, starring Vincent Price. So you have a witchfinder uh, in the room with a movie called Witchfinder General in the background. Excellent stuff. Isn't that good? Yeah, that's really good. Nice spot there. There you go. And one tiny thing that we missed from earlier on in the series, which I really wanted called out, uh, in Aziraphale's bookshop, the Mr. AZ Fell, uh, the bookshop that, there, uh, on a little hat stand, you see Terry Pratchett's hat and scarf as if Terry is browsing the books in the bookshop. Uh, lovely touch by the, by the makers. Uh, and definitely this show is rewarding repeated viewings, uh, very, very well. Good stuff. Yeah, excellent stuff. Yeah. Uh, again, I think the whole homage to Terry Pratchett is really, really nice. Mm. I mean, even down to, was it they had a, a seat left with his scarf and hat as well yeah. at the premiere uh, of the, the series? That's right. A big, a uh, big bag of popcorn and his, and his hat on the, on the seat in front because he said, I won't believe this until I'm sitting, eating a giant bag of popcorn in the cinema. I won't believe that this has been adapted. So, uh, lovely, lovely touches. And this, if anything, this is making me want to go back and read the whole Discworld series again. Absolutely. So, gentlemen, I think that's about wrapping up before we move into some feedback. So, in general, what did we feel about this episode? How are we? With We're halfway through the season. Mm-hmm. This was a fantastic episode. This is my favorite episode so far. Um, you know, we'd said at the beginning, having David Tennant and... Michael Sheen cast in these two roles was just fantastic casting. And to get a half an hour of basically just the two of them interact with some fantastic British actors as well, with the League of Gentlemen in there, with loads of other actors in there, but mostly just the two of them going through these big moments in history where effectively even angels might question God for flooding Earth and killing everybody in Mesopotamia. Even angels might question the French Revolution killing loads of people because they were aristocrats thinking that was that the devil that did it actually no it was humans that did it you know the the idea that these two go through history in these big moments and have have their moments of questioning but uh but it all comes down to their relationship it's a brilliant brilliant choice for this episode yeah it's really good i think like you it's one of my favorites uh my favorite so far i should say um of this six episode series Mm -hmm. Uh, for me i give this five sherbet lemons out of five there were so many moments that i laughed out loud to that were just silly um and i don't know i just feel as though sometimes i've just been quoting parts of the show back (laughs) on this podcast uh today and that's because i just found them genuinely off kilter off the wall silly comedic nonsense in some cases and some just comedic silliness um really really good um and just good good fun uh whether it's the dog and cat those mortal enemies of old uh whether it is the the nazis in the church uh going through you know their their dirty das kind of thing but to to play it for suckers uh or whether it is the witch finder saucepan tin can milk bottle and milk bottle deceased <laughs> i mean just really good and i think on the flip side of that the the run through of Zerophale and 
Crowley through the ages is really, really uh, funny and poignant. There's some mm-hmm. really big moments here, and it just sends up that uh, bandstand divorce, I suppose, in yeah. that sense. Um, oh, that's uh, terrible. I know it is, isn't it? <laughs> How many <laughs> it really bandstand is. divorces do you know about? <laughs> is that a I don't new? know. <laughs> I think so, or you know, by the seafront divorce or something like that. Of it all just... of them, this was definitely the worst and most painful. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think, um, just really great moments that develop their relationship and ultimately uh, bringing it to that bandstand end. I, I, I suppose. So yeah, I absolutely give this five sherbet lemons out of five. Nice, the most powerful sherbet lemons in the exactly. world, powering an entire uh, power station, <laughs> nuclear power station. Uh, there is also one little one that I forgot to say, which was um, that. Did you notice that Shakespeare got a line for Antony and Cleopatra from Crowley? Crowley quotes uh, basically a line, and, and Shakespeare goes. That's pretty good. I might write that down and use that later. (laughs) Nice little touch. Chris, overall, what did you think of the episode? Uh, I'm with both of you. This so far has been my, the the episode of the season for me. Mm -hmm. Um, very much because, as I said, the beginning of this episode, I'm in love with the, 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 the connection the, the two David Tennant and Michael Sheen have in Mm -hmm. this. They are kind of shining so brightly and, a whole 30 minutes of just that before we even get the credits opening was just amazing. Excellent. Let's get on to some feedback. If you want to join us over on our Facebook page, you can join us at facebook.com slash TV podcast industries, where we're talking about uh, Good Omens right now. Bob Phillips shared his thoughts about episode two over on the Facebook group. He said that there is some lovely foolishness throughout this episode. Comic timing of the pair, Tenant and Sheen, is perfection. That in an interview podcast themselves have heard, so I'll be popping over to listen to that really soon. Loved the reappearance of the hapless nun who slipped into mind control like she did when playing a unit scientist in the Zygon invasion and inverted version over in the doctor who universe nice catch there bob yeah good catch there absolutely we know there's loads of actors that have been over in the doctor who universe i did not catch that sister mary loquacious was uh was one of the scientists for unit uh, over in doctor who really cool actually adam uh, adam young's dad um is also a character that uh, was an actor in Doctor Who. He played the father of a, of a possessed child as well. So uh, interesting that they've brought him over as well. Uh, Bob continues, also, I was just wondering, just before the paintball, if we get some comment about how Angel, there's no way I'm spelling azithromycin correctly. You can try spelling it correctly, Bob. It's <laughs> spelled Aziraphale. Azithromycin is a tablet that you take, I think. <laughs> so I definitely don't know what that is. Uh, but he says... Uh, he's wondering whether there was any comment about how the angel kept wearing the same jacket and the devilish dry cleaners end up doing their best. Uh, yeah, this, this idea that effectively we've got Aziraphale going back, you know, for 4,000, 6,000 years at this stage, always wearing white and never getting dirty. Is there just this amazing devilish dry cleaners that are taking care of his clothes for him, you know? <laughs> or are, are these the miracles that he's doing? The that, minor miracles, yes. <laughs> the ones he's just constantly getting in trouble for. I'd be down like, hey, I would wear white all the time if I could, if I didn't have to just look after cleaning it, because I'm messy either. <laughs> yeah, I would be afraid. Certainly if you're eating chow by uh, famine. Definitely, definitely. Potential for anal leakage. <laughs> you see, obviously this is the reason why he goes to France for some crepes rather than to Italy for some spaghetti bolognese in a white suit. <laughs> Not a good idea. Bob says, and finally, since you reminded me about the Queen gag, I've been guessing what tune we're going to be treated to next. 
<laughs> so that's that's something to always watch out for in these episodes. They did do a little deal with the Queen where they get any song that they want, it seems. Uh, so there's going to be some interesting ones hopefully coming up for the rest of the season. Yeah, and you've noticed something about the end credits as well. Yes. Uh, did you notice yeah, the end credits song, the actual theme tune, changes for each episode? Uh, it does a little style change depending on something that might have happened in the episode. So in episode two, episode one is the same. It's just the extended version, I think. Uh, episode two is much more of a uh, an 1800s kind of style, an old age English style, because we had the first view of Agnes Nutter. And episode three here, uh, because we had the swinging 60s, this was much more of a 60s kind of uh, 60s version or take on the theme tune if you haven't noticed it go back and check the uh the credits at the end i completely missed that so i'm gonna that's <laughs> now exactly what i'm doing after this there you go yeah i think i've been i've been humming along to the opening theme tune and i just noticed it when i let the credits play at the end that it is different each time yeah thank you so much uh bob for for those comments really good to to get your thoughts on it some more Facebook thoughts as well are from Donald Dennis. He says, you mentioned the British sensibility in episode zero. It has been a long time since I've watched a show with so much of that. I'm really, really loving it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this episode ramps it up even further Mm -hmm. for that kind of British sensibility (laughs) and and certainly just the great silly comedy and just off the wall really um, as well. Thanks Donald for that. I know there's a lot of Anglophiles who are big fans of Monty Python and big fans of Blackadder and those types of shows and it feels like a long time since we've had something this this kind of level of budget and this level of comedy so uh, I'm so glad that it's translating really well. Yeah, 100% Donald's completely there with you on this. We also had some feedback from John Higley, who said, the thing that really impresses me the most about actors is good body language. For example, the episode of Veep, where Julia Lewis-Dreyfus' characters develops a nervous eye flutter twitch is damn near a magic trick. Just amazing. Right up there, all the way through, are Michael Sheen and David Tennant's performance in this. Perfect posture, deliberate motions, broken by nervousness, and amazing facial expressions with Sheen, and a swaggering, slithering, lounging tenant that juts his jaw and stabs out his tongue and alternates his face between relatable humanity and completely wickedness. So damn good. So damned good, even. Oh, God, yes. Damned, definitely. (laughs) Damned. I think this episode had so many examples of this that we pointed out as we as we talked through it as well, but so many great examples of these two guys on top form. You know, they're they're both actors who've been on the stage. Tabor Tennant obviously has a vast history, well known as having a, a career on the stage as Hamlet, uh, specifically, which I think is quite interesting, seeing how cold he is to Shakespeare doing Hamlet in this episode. But he has some great moments in this episode, along with all the ones that we pointed out from Michael Sheen. Really good cast, John. Yeah, thank you, John. Uh, it's really good to to get your thoughts on this. And yeah, I mean, certainly so many good little uh, moments, acting moments here. I definitely need to go and check out the uh, eye flutter twitch uh, from V. I recently <laughs> just finished the whole thing of the back-to-back season because Veep has finished off. And I remember that episode so well yeah. because it really is. If you haven't had a chance to um, basically watch Veep, I highly recommend it. Um, more just because it is terrifyingly accurate and ahead of its time for what is in it. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Might, might have to check that out. I always liked uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, finally, we have an email from Bob Phillips um, for this episode, episode three. Remember, you can send in any feedback through email. Just go to goodomenspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, Bob says, a romp with a very long opening and the reprise after it coming perfectly, ridiculously timed. <laughs> but the end, oh my heart, the sweet partnership forged through 6,000 years of miracles and Nazis and not quite Agent Carter oh, and nice. ducks and theatre and judicial execution and avoidance of the same broken on a wet bandstand the day before the world ends. Couldn't have been sadder. Absolutely. I, I think um, it's amazing how those 6,000 years and that long opening uh, just really um, add to this mm-hmm. wet bandstand uh, breakup for sure. Yeah. Um, Bob carries on. I very much enjoyed the Nouvelle Cuisine gag of famine and the food less chow to poke fun at both ends of the culinary spectrum. Um, <laughs> both ends of the biological spectrum as well, <laughs> no doubt. Um, and also, uh, Bob says, almost wished we'd had a Xerophel singing opera as he went to meet the Dark Knight. Then we could have had You're My Best Friend playing when Crowley got into his car next. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that's a nice thought, actually, yeah. Uh, Bob finishes off with Fun Pod, as always. Cheers, Bob. Thank you so much, Bob. Uh, really good to get your thoughts. That's a, yeah, that would have been a really nice moment, You're My Best Friend playing in, in the car, From yeah. Queen, yes, yeah. I know. And now that Bob's looking out for Queen songs, uh, as we, as we go through the episodes, obviously, that would have been a really nice moment. But I think it's pretty much underlined they are each other's best friends, even though they don't particularly like each other, as, as Aziraphale says. Thanks so much for the feedback, Bob. This is such a shorter season. We only have three more episodes to go in this season, so I know people are going to be watching it at different, at different times. We know if you're watching on BBC right now, you only get one episode a week as you as you wait for new episodes to come out. Hopefully you're tuning into our podcast. Uh, if you do want to email us with your thoughts, as John said, email us at goodomenspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts if you're watching it or if you're binging it or if you're on your fifth watch and you're listening along to the podcast as you go. Yes, and don't forget you can subscribe on any godly or devilish podcast player over at tvpodcastindustries.com. We're also over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Remember to rate us, leave a review, and share the podcast because that's sharing the love. And Aziraphale will like you for that, so please do do that. <laughs> also, as we've been mentioning, check out podcastica.com for other podcasts such as The Walking Dead cast, which returns this week with Fear the Walking Dead Season, season 5, Episode 1, just aired on Sunday, the 2nd of June. Um, House Podcastica starts covering Handmaid's Tale very soon, a very in-depth podcast. That's going to be a tough one to go to after listening to Good Omens and getting your laughs for the next uh, next couple of weeks. But really intrigued to see what Kirsten thinks of Handmaid's Tale. Uh, strange indeed another one of the podcastia podcasts will be going back to black mirror uh, which starts up its next season with three episodes from next week in june so check them all out over on podcastica.com yeah absolutely we'll be back with our review of good omens episode four saturday morning fun time later in the week (laughs) the apocalypse day remember is saturday morning fun time brilliant (laughs) oh god you devils yes thank you so much for joining us fellow acolytes looking forward to talk to you next time yes thank you so much and i can't wait to see you on saturday morning (laughs) (laughs) yes fellow acolytes as always it's a pleasure speaking with you this is witchfinder slotted spoon here uh, your local neighborhood watch representative and remember if you're coming here to smoke your fatty spliffers and bimble off to woo land well then you'll just have to bimble off back to wherever you've come from But remember to tune in to Good Omens on TV Podcast Industries. Speak to you soon.
Bye. Bimble. Bye. The apocalypse is coming. Grab your hard hat. Doug Doug Green. Green. Which find a Lipton. <laughs> Which find a table. <laughs> the whole joke of it is that he's effectively <laughs> teaching German because he starts putting it into all the past participles. He does. He goes, oh, I'll have We've to remember that one. You've got you suckers. He, he suckers. She suckers. It suckers. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to because we can't go on without having that joke. I'm sorry. Johnners. Uh, Adam confronts Athena, who lost her book. No, it's not nope. Athena, it's Athema. <laughs> An- Anathema. Anathema. Yeah. Adam confronts Athanema. Ah, why can't I say it? Anathema. <laughs> Adam confronts Anathema, who lost her book. Yes, and don't forget, you can subscribe to... on N- Yes, and don't forget, you can subscribe on any godly or television... The nuns would be proud. Which one's the Order of St. Beryl? Whichever nuns you've got on top. The Chattering Uh, Order of St. Beryl would love our podcast. That's pretty much what they are are there for, isn't it? And for the Shakespeare, I should have gone, hey, nunny, nunny. (laughs) Nunny, nunny. Um, Yes, and you can subscribe on any godly or devilish podcast player through through us no that's <laughs> over us <laughs> guys you can't just you can't write stuff if you write stuff i read it anything that i'm literally that that that, that scene what was that from uh, oh, uh burgundy if you yeah. put anything there he's just gonna write read it hi chris <laughs> <laughs>